Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome our discussion today of the new book, Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York. Um, now, the way we uh, like to run the event, or at least uh, I like to run the events, is I want to make this as much question and answer as possible. Uh, that means we take questions, comments, whatever it is you want to direct that at the panel um, and try and make most of the events about that. Uh, you can submit questions and comments on whatever platform you're on. There are all sorts of different ways to do it, depending on what platform you're watching us on. Uh, certainly on Twitter and Facebook, you can use hashtag CatoCEF, that's C-A-T-O-C-E-F, to get questions to me. Um, and so I encourage you to think of questions, comments now, and submit them, and I get to as many as I possibly can. Uh, so that we can move this along as quickly as possible because you want to get into the substance of it. I'm not going to go into the details of the bios of our terrific panel today. You can Google them. You can learn all you want about them on the Internet. I'm just going to tell you quickly about who they are. Uh, and then I'm going to ask uh, each one to, to answer just a, one question of mine to set up why this book exists, talk about their chapters, give you food for thought to generate your own questions and comments, and then we'll move on to those. So without further ado, first I'll be introducing Jason Bedrick. He's one of the co-editors of this book, along with J.P. Green and Matthew Lee. Uh, he's also a Cato adjunct scholar and director of policy at EdChoice. Uh, second, we have Kevin Vallier. He's the associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he directs the program in philosophy, politic, politics, economics, and law. And then we have Rita Koganzen. She's the assist, associate director of the program of, on constitutionalism and democracy and a lecturer in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Um, so again, just a reminder, I'll be gathering questions and comments uh, that you write, that you put into the whatever platform you're on. Um, just to start us off, I'm going to ask Jason first to tell us about a little bit about the book very quickly. Um, and then, uh, again, Kevin and Rita. And I'm going to ask them to, uh, by name, because uh, we don't want to have a, sort of a, a log jam of people answering questions and speaking all over each other because we're on an online platform and that can happen more often. So it may seem a little unnatural, but that's gonna keep everything flowing quickly so that we can move on to your questions and comments. And again, send those using hashtag CatoCEF. And so the first uh, question I'm gonna send to Jason, uh, and Jason, what I'd like you to do if you could is just lay out why you wrote this book, maybe give us a little bit of background on the uh, controversy in New York and anything else you think we need to know about the book itself. Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for hosting this event. Uh, we think that this is a, a book that addresses some very real and important issues today. Uh, again, it is Religious Liberty uh, case study of yeshivas versus New York. Now, yeshivas are schools that uh, Orthodox Jewish children attend, uh, and there's been a controversy brewing in New York for uh, the last several years uh, over certain Haredi yeshivas. Uh, Haredi are also known as ultra-Orthodox, so that term is not really used in the community. Uh, most of the yeshivas in New York are teaching secular education, but there are a small number uh, that believe that uh, they should be studying religious studies 
uh, for almost the entire day or in some cases the entire day. Uh, and so a number of years ago there, uh, or for, for the last uh, decade or so, there's been an organization called Young Advocates for Fair Education, uh, which is mostly um, uh, people who have grown up in the Haredi community uh, and then left uh, the community as adults, but believed that they didn't get a high quality secular education uh, to which they believe they were entitled under the New York State's uh, substantial equivalence law, which says that uh, the education provided by private schools must be, quote, substantially equivalent, whatever that means, to what is provided in the public schools. And so even though this uh, affects really a even within the Jewish community, even within the Orthodox Jewish community, a, a relatively small number of children, uh, the questions that it raises are of uh, much broader import. Uh, you can think of some of the religious liberty and education cases going back to the early 20th century. Uh, for example, when uh, the KKK and nativists in Oregon uh, in the early 1900s had persuaded the legislature to outlaw private education. There was a famous case, Pierce v. the Society of Sisters, uh, in which the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled on behalf of Catholic schools uh, that uh, the state could not outlaw private education. Even though Catholics were a religious minority, it had obviously broad implications even outside the Catholic community. Uh, likewise, uh, a few decades later, there was a decision concerning the Amish called uh, Yoder v. Uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder, uh, in which the uh, the Amish wanted to have a an exemption under the First Amendment from uh, the compulsory education law. Uh, again, the Supreme Court sided with uh, the Amish, saying that they they did have a religious in, uh, liberty interest in having their children exempt at least beyond eighth grade from the state's compulsory education law. Uh, so here too, you have a religious minority, but the questions that are raised by this case uh, are go far beyond this particular community. Uh, and so we look at it from, uh, in this book, uh, we, we address it uh, from the view of uh, political philosophy, uh, from you know a constitutional uh, perspective, and then also a practical perspective. So some of the um, political philosophy questions that are raised uh, who bears the primary responsibility for ensuring that children receive a quality education? Is it parents or, or is it the state? Uh, who gets to decide what the minimum standard for education should be? Uh, when the desires of parents or religious communities conflict with the dictates of state policymakers, who should prevail and, and under what circumstances? Uh, from a legal perspective, you know, do parents have a religious liberty interest that constitutionally outweighs the state, the state's interest in having citizens learn certain skills or content that it believes necessary for an educated citizenry. Just because the religious minorities won in the previous two cases uh, doesn't mean that they're going to prevail in this case. And indeed, uh, those previous cases left the door open to a, a great deal of uh, government intervention in private education. Uh, and how likely are courts um, uh, how are courts likely to address this conflict and how should they address this conflict? And then practically speaking, how has this issue been addressed before? Uh, what are the ramifications for other religious communities, for Jews, for Christians, for Muslims, uh, and, and also for homeschoolers? Uh, how has this been addressed in Europe? Uh, and so that's uh, what our book is organized around. We have a variety of academics, philosophers, historians, legal experts, uh, school leaders and, and education practitioners 
that address these questions uh, in an organized fashion that we think our readers will help illuminate not only the particular questions of this case, but the ramifications for society at large. Yeah, well, and I'll say, I, I of course, read the book. Um, I'd feel terrible if I was moderating this and I'd read the book and all those chapters are excellent and you can really get, uh, I think all the different aspects you'd want dealt with of this question are all in there. Um, Kevin, uh, for you, uh, I thought your uh, chapter, I thought all the chapters were excellent, but you have sort of a systematic way of assessing when it may be appropriate for government to intervene in parental uh, education decisions. Uh, tell us a little bit about your chapter. Oh, just let me say thanks for uh, having me on. And I was really delighted when Jason invited me to be part of the volume. One of the cool things that happened was that I got the opportunity to just st study what the kids at these yeshivas are learning. And I was completely blown away by the quality of their education. I mean, in many cases, they're being introduced to say legal or historical ideas um, or, or, or facts that um, kids twice their age aren't, aren't learning. So initially, when I came into this case, I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe these kids aren't getting good education, but actually, it's quite extraordinary what they're doing. So when I wrote the piece, I decided to try to set out in a very general way the conditions under which uh, states could intervene in private uh, religious school education, and then to see whether Yafed's complaints um, were enough to uh, uh, satisfy those conditions. So I just begin with a very simple principle of any free society that there's a presumption against state coercion. That the burden is on the state in order to explain or um, <coughs> um, to explain or justify its intervention. And that's just because coercion can be very damaging, traumatizing, it can harm, it can kill. Uh, and so there needs to be a good reason to intervene. In the case of intervening in schools, I sort of outlined three different conditions. First, generally we defer to parents in educating their children, not only because we think they know best, but we oftentimes think that they have the right to educate their children, but those rights have limits. If, for instance, parents decide not to educate their children at all, we think the educational interests of children, their interest in being educated, outweighs the, uh, the rights of parents, right? So if you just trapped your kids and taught them nothing for 10 years. That's not something parents have the right to do. So that would be a condition under which the state could intervene. And this is just in principle. I'm not saying this applies to this case. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. The intervention can't be excessively coercive or punitive. So what that means is that um, the government should use the least coercive means available in order to secure the educational interests of children which again, you know, we're trying to avoid coercion and violence where we can, we're interested in having a free society. And the third condition is that, um, that the government intervention, uh, whatever it is, um, be shown to actually improve education for kids, right? Because if you're allowing people to use coercion, but there's no promise of it being any better once they're coerced, um, then that's not gonna be enough to justify intervention. So those three conditions, you have to think the educational interests of children are threatened. What's proposed has to be the minimal amount of coercion required. And you have to think that coercion is uh, going to be enough to improve things. And I actually think in the, this particular situation, I found in my research that none of these conditions uh, were met, um, in part because the evidence that was provided that these educational interests were threatened was much too thin. You had a, a variety of people, for instance, making the complaints that were ruled not to have standing. 
Um, the representativeness of the people who complained across the different schools was in question. Um, was there a representative sample of complaints, right? Otherwise, we don't know if the complainants are biased in some way. So there was just a lack of information about the educational interests of children being set back in a way that would override the educating interests of parents. Right? Parents don't have to do everything right in order to um, get to decide how their, their children are raised. So I thought the second condition wasn't met either um, because there was excess coercion. In many cases, they were, uh, um, they were proposing to shut the yeshivas down entirely and to count uh, the, the parents who didn't send their children uh, to better schools as, as truant. Um, those are very severe legal penalties. So it seemed to me completely excessive. But I also thought that, you know, given the quality of schooling in New York State and New York City in many places, it just wasn't obvious that giving the state more power over these uh, these schools would actually improve the quality of their education. Because when I looked at the quality of their education, it was pretty remarkable uh, compared to what government may offer. So that's the basic idea. I tried to set out the conditions under which government intervention would be warranted, gave three conditions, and I found that in this case, none of those conditions were plausibly met. And so that's the basis on which I defended the religious liberty of these schools. I'm sure we're going to delve into it a lot more. We have questions already coming in that start to get at the uh, sort of uh, nuts and bolts of what you're talking about. Um, but uh, Rita, I want you to go first. I have to say, I don't know who wrote the chapter titles. And if you wrote your own chapter title, good for you. Someone else wrote it. Uh, good for them. But it's my favorite chapter title. Pork eating is not a reasonable way of life. If you want to have a controversial title, that seems like a good one. Um, and so can you tell us uh, what does that mean? And if you did write the title, go ahead and take credit for it, because I don't want to give it to Jason if if you did it. Um, and then tell us a little bit about what, what you're trying to say with that. Sure, yeah, that, that was my title. I was um, using a quote from Amy Gutman's book, uh, Democracy and Education. No, actually, it was one of her articles. Um, uh, she's an educational theorist, and um, I was arguing against her, and she said pork eating is a reasonable way of life. Uh, so the, the purpose of my chapter is to take up the political theory that I think underlies uh, a lot of the political criticism of the yeshivas. Um, there's an intuition or belief that's held by many secular and educated people in the United States that the best kind of education for children in our society is one that will open as many doors as possible for them and any education that would preclude children from becoming doctors or lawyers or marine biologists, or even one that would make it more difficult for them to follow these paths is a bad education. Um, and it, within the discipline of political theory, some theorists have expanded this intuition into a broader argument that the goal of education is autonomy. Um, autonomy is developed by protecting each child's quote, right to an open future um, and encouraging him to critically examine and revise his ideas about the good and the best way to develop this kind of autonomy is by, as one theorist calls it, exposure to diversity. So you can see that religious education is often at odds with these aims, and the more intensely religious an education is, the more it would potentially limit exposure to the entire range of ideas and lifestyles out there uh, that these theorists argue facilitate autonomy. Um, but I think there are two basic reasons that this autonomy argument fails, um, especially in light of the current challenges facing liberalism. And so I defend the yeshivas sort of against this kind of theoretical understanding of what a good education is. The first reason I think is that 
Um, although Education for Autonomy purports to give children a neutral and broad selection of lives, it actually has a very narrow vision of a good life. Its conception of autonomy as open-ended choosing elevates the kind of secular, upwardly mobile professional uh, who can sort of function very well in a global economy. Such people appear maximally autonomous because they have access to the greatest number of lifestyle choices available in contemporary America, among the greatest variety of careers, of hobbies, friends, potential spouses, residences, and so on. And a successful education for an open future is actually an education for this particular kind of professional future. Uh, and so that's why you see this overlap between kind of secular educated opinion and academic political theory. In a way, it's the same demographic that's making that argument. Um, an education for an open future is open in some ways, I think that's right, but it also closes off many possibilities. It makes it harder to justify pursuing, for example, a trade, since vocational training isn't as flexible and transferable a qualification as many college degrees are. It makes it difficult to justify remaining in your hometown or taking care of your family, since these choices close off future or even present opportunities. Um, ironically, it even makes it difficult to join a serious religious community like Orthodox Judaism, since without the requisite knowledge of the Hebrew language and the rituals that you would have gained during childhood, you would be unable to participate in that religion. So elevating autonomy means diminishing all kinds of good lives and choices that just don't prioritize freedom from obligation. And the second problem that I see with autonomy education is that although exposure to diversity is intended to expand our capacity for independent thinking, it actually in a certain way undermines it by undermining the development of self-control, which is a virtue that's necessary for intellectual independence. Insisting that a well-educated person frequently revise his deepest moral commitments stunts the development of self-control, which is developed by commitment to principles and persistence in them, rather than their perpetual reconsideration. So the effectual result of an education for autonomy is on one hand, the moral elevation of a kind of elite cosmopolitan educational and professional trajectory above more attainable and rooted ways of life. And on the other hand, it involves the deprioritization of the virtues of commitment and constancy and self-control in a regime that's most in need of extra support for these virtues. Hasidic education certainly doesn't prepare children for every career, um, but we have reasonable empirical evidence, I think, that it works for the Hasidic community, which has substantially lower rates of a lot of social pathologies that affect the non-religious lower class in the United States. Um, the Hasidic community allows dissenters to exit, and even though that requires retraining for the secular world, as a lot of Yafed's complainants point out, um, just because it's not a cost-free exit doesn't mean that it's not a plausible option. And the point that I wanna emphasize is that the other things that are overlooked by autonomy education have costs too, if you want to take them up later in your life. Becoming a Hasidic Jew, if you've received an education for autonomy, takes quite a bit of remedial education as well. So all educations are narrow uh, and constraining in their own ways, but I think that in general, from the perspective of the country as a whole, pluralism is a better route. The more options we have in the United States for education, the better off we are. Um, and so uh, the, the quote about pork eating as a, as a reasonable way of life 
uh, Amy Gutman, she, who's one of these proponents of autonomy education, says parents certainly have a right to forbid their children to eat pork within their home, even though they also have a duty to allow their children to be exposed to the knowledge that eating pork is considered a reasonable way of life by many other people. Uh, and the argument that my chapter tries to make is that's not really an important knowledge that needs to be incorporated into education. Pork eating is not a really a reasonable way of life if you wanna consider what a reasonable way of life is. It's gonna make me reconsider lots of my dietary decisions, but um, <laughs> that's not really the topic right now. Uh, we have a lot of questions and comments that have come in. Uh, so I'm gonna to go to the first one that gets really to uh, a, a fundamental question that you address, I, I don't know, it's in several chapters, so I can't say specifically whether it's in every chapter, um, but it, I think it's also been a pretty a substantial part of the debate. And so unfortunately the person, I don't have a name for who asked it, but they said, could it be argued that if the education is not substantially equivalent, you are not prepared for life uh, outside of your community and then therefore become a ward of the state uh, could that be argument enough for the state to intervene more? And I think that's a, a part of the overall Yafed discussion is, well, is there uh, excessive or a lot of welfare use uh, in the uh, Hasidic Jewish community? And I just wanted to add one other thing about this that I know, Kevin, it seemed in your chapter you were grappling with, and I'm not sure whether you wrestled it to the ground or not, uh, how much English should somebody uh, in a school learn in order to be considered uh, educated enough that the state should intervene? Uh, I'll go in sort of reverse order. I'll start with Rita, then Kevin, then Jason. So it's really kind of two questions. The one from the viewer is, if you, know, if you become a ward of the state it, without substantially equivalent education, should it be imposed on you? And then I'm in particular interested in English as the language that you do or do not learn. So Kevin, I mean, sorry, Rita, do you want to go first with that? Um, sure, I can I can give a brief answer. Actually, I think that Jason probably will have a more thorough answer on the question of English. But uh, on the question of, of the wards of the state, I mean, I guess my question about the question is, how are you going to know in advance which child is going to become a ward of the state? I mean, there is welfare use uh, among the Hasidic community, but there's also a lot of welfare use among the secular community in the United States. Uh, and, you know, a lot of public school graduates uh, end up on welfare or using various, you know, state services. And we can't know in advance who that's going to be uh, when we think about it in terms of people who are not Hasidic. So should we say that all families who's, who have children and are using state services um, we need to more carefully monitor their children's education to ensure that they will not end up using the same social services. That would require a great deal of state intervention into family life um, and state supervision of child rearing. And I would imagine that most people would not be in favor of that for lower income and minority families in the United States. So I would assume that the same principle would apply for Hasidic families that um, the fact that there are people in your community who are using uh, social services should not put you under greater uh, scrutiny by the state uh, based on a kind of communal or associative likelihood of using social services. Um, so I don't really see a strong case to be made for uh, 
is Hasidic education going to result in your being on welfare because some Hasidic people are on welfare? Well, some public education products are also on welfare. Um, in fact, probably the majority of welfare recipients received a public education. Uh, and I will leave the language question, I think, to, to Jason and Kevin. All right, Kevin, you want to go next? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> on the first point, I just completely agree uh, with Rita. I mean, you, you, you have to make the comparative judgment, right? You have to say, well, okay, so many of these students may end up on welfare, but then other people might too. They may, not, they may end up on welfare even if there's state intervention. Do we have any reason to think the state intervention is going to make them less dependent or more dependent? Where's the evidence for that? Where's the data? Can you show this in a clear way that would be enough to justify the kinds of interferences um, that, would be, that would be necessary or that have been proposed? So I think that that's just one very clear point of agreement is that there'd have to be quite a lot of monitoring in order uh, to to, um, to to meet that condition and have to be applied pretty broadly. I mean, one example I use to illustrate this is, you know, drug testing welfare recipients. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, we need to make sure they're not on drugs or something like that. But then um, for a lot of, say, classical liberal folks who want to say, well, we don't want welfare to go to waste, but they're also worried about the drug war and the kinds of interference with personal liberty that that involves. And so, you know, on the one hand, you know, you don't want waste. On the other hand, you just really don't want to be interfering with and monitoring people's lives constantly. And if you wanted to be consistent, you would have to do that, not just uh, for the Haredi children, but across uh, across the board. And that would, that would be quite striking. So that's just to, to agree with Rita. The language question was actually one that was pretty difficult for me um, because I was learning the kind of language mastery that these students have. So oftentimes they have at least two languages. So the question would be, you know, are uh, students, uh, should they be required to learn English? And the really interesting case here is that the politics of it is kind of flipped. So on the one hand now, instead of the, the right being the ones who say, you know, you have to learn English, you have to speak English, um, you have, in this case, it looks like some on the left saying, no, you have to, you have to know English. Um, but I think a lot of the students will end up picking up a lot of English because the dominant language that they've spoken and they have really good linguistic skills in other languages. So I was kind of on the fence about whether English was required because it seems like these students can pick it up. They have already picked a lot of it up. Um, but there's still a lot I don't uh, know about the community. So I just hand it over to Jason in order to get the sort of full background there. Yeah, I don't have that much more to, to add to what Rita and Kevin said. I would just, um, on the first question, uh, it's interesting that uh, people think of um, welfare usage or Medicare, Medicaid usage as being a ward of the state, but not public school usage. So in New York City, uh, the average per pupil expenditure is about $30,000. Uh, so these families that don't use the public schools, uh, they're saving for each child about $30,000 per pupil. Uh, so if they have a family, the, the, the uh, Haredi communities uh, tend to have a very large families. So if you've got a family that has eight children, uh, which is pretty typical, uh, then we're talking about $240,000 a year. So even if they are receiving some welfare benefits or some uh, Medicaid benefits, uh, are they receiving $240,000 worth of those benefits? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, in most cases, I, I, I highly doubt that. Uh, we don't have a lot of great uh, data to prove it one way or the other, 
and yes, the, the community um, does have uh, a higher than average usage, so far as we can tell, of uh, welfare usage and, and other aid programs. Uh, but they also have very large family sizes. And so they're much more likely to qualify for those. So they could be earning six figures. But if you have, you know, eight to 12 kids, you're going to end up qualifying. So when you adjust for family size, it's not clear that their usage is actually that much greater than average. Uh, and so at, at what point, you know, is it if uh, if their community has a 5% or 10% or 25% uh, greater likelihood of using one of these programs, uh, is that the point at which we say that the state now has to uh, interfere? Uh, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we also see too that, that even some of the, uh, the, the people that started Yafed uh, ended up going on to receive uh, graduate degrees in you know, higher education. Uh, the founder of Yafed himself graduated summa cum laude from uh, state college and then went on to get a master's degree in social work. Um, how held back was he really? I'm sure it was extremely difficult to uh, transition from one community to another. Um, and it's also quite difficult to, trans, uh, to transfer in the reverse. But does that mean that the parents no longer have an interest in educating their children uh, or an interest against the state interfering in that form of education? Uh, as to the English question, I, certainly I think that there is a, a moral duty that parents have to educate their children in a language. Uh, and not just a language that, you know, if they made up a language or if, you know, they were you know, teaching their children Klingon or something like that, uh, you know, that, that a handful of people speak, uh, that I, I think is insufficient. It has to be a language that uh, there is a, you know, a critical mass of people speak, you know, and in this case, Yiddish, you've got uh, hundreds of thousands of people that are speaking Yiddish. Uh, they have... Uh, you know, if you go into some of these neighborhoods, you see that there are flyers all over the neighborhood in Yiddish, that the signs are in Yiddish. Uh, this is this is what they speak. Um, we don't have a national language in the United States. Uh, there are more than 300 languages that are, are spoken. Uh, English, obviously, is the dominant one, but we don't uh, we don't it's not a national language in the sense that we don't force anybody to learn it. And most of these people. Uh, they live in New York. It's not like they're out in the woods. Uh, they are exposed to English all the time. Uh, they speak English sort of as a second language, like a lot of uh, first-generation immigrants. Uh, but it's a language that not only they have, uh, as Kevin pointed out, uh, they usually speak English, uh, Hebrew, and, and have fluency in uh, Aramaic. Uh, they have the skills to acquire other languages. I think that's what's uh, most important. From the Matergamon on Twitter, uh, he would like the panel to discuss the allegedly bigoted history of the substantially uh, equivalent clause and whether or not that is relevant today. And I think, Jason, would you like to take that? Sure. Uh, and I would, uh, anybody who's interested in this question, I think uh, one of the, the best treatments of it was an article in Education Next, uh, I think maybe it was two or three years ago, by Menachem Wecker. Uh, it was titled, uh, New York State Cracks Down on Jewish Schools. Uh, and he pointed out that the, uh, the substantial equivalency requirement uh, essentially uh, was passed at the same time that New York State adopted its version of the Blaine Amendment. 
Uh, now, for those who don't know, what, what's the Blaine Amendment? There was uh, uh, a Senator, James G. Blaine, from the state of Maine, uh, who uh, was a prominent nativist, uh, who was worried about uh, Catholics bringing with them rum, Romanism, and rebellion, uh, you know, in the late 1800s. Uh, and so he was pushing a, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would prevent public funds from going to uh, so-called parochial schools, which meant uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Catholic schools. Uh, now, at the time, the the common schools or the public schools were de facto non-denominational Protestant. Uh, they taught the Protestant version of the Bible. They led students in non-denominational Protestant prayer. Uh, but obviously, uh, this this didn't work for Catholics and to uh, a lesser extent Lutherans and, and many other religious, uh, you know, non-Christian religious groups like Jews and Muslims. Uh, so. Uh, when some of those groups, particularly the Catholics, said, well, look, our tax dollars are funding your Protestant schools. We would like those tax dollars also to go to our Catholic schools. They said, oh, no, no, you have parochial schools. We have schools that are open to anybody. And you're, you know, of course, welcome to send your children to our public schools and we'll Protestantize them for you. Uh, at the same, the, the, that amendment failed at the federal level, but it was adopted in, in almost 40 states at the state level in the state constitution. And at the same time, they said, okay, you Catholics, you can have your own schools. We're not going to publicly fund them, but you can have them. But you have to teach something that is substantially equivalent to what's going on in the public schools. We don't want you to look too different than our Protestant uh, common schools. Uh, so that's that's really where it came from. It, it's the the law itself is rooted in anti-Catholic bigotry. Uh, interestingly, it essentially lied dormant for about a, a century because the Catholics were actually eager to uh, prove that they were teaching uh, something that was substantially equivalent to the public schools. They just said, "Look, we, we're just like you. Just you know, our we have a Catholic flavor, and you've got a Protestant flavor. But otherwise, we're you know we're we're good citizens, just like everybody else." It wasn't until much later when uh, Protestants and now especially, uh, you know, some forms of Orthodox Jews said, no, we want something that is substantially different than what the public schools are offering. And now it raises all these sorts of interesting questions. Great. Um, so I don't think anybody else, anyone else want to add anything to that? If not, I've got lots of good questions uh, that have come in. Unfortunately, several of them, I don't know the names of the people, so I can't give them credit uh, for the good questions. But um, one of them asked for Kevin specifically, can you share more specifics about the remarkable education you witnessed in uh, Hasidic yeshivas in New York? Uh, and they would like to know whether or not that extends beyond the term they use was Judaics. I assume that means other uh, yeshivas. Um, and I'm also sort of, as part of that question, I'm going to throw my own question in. Suppose the education wasn't remarkable. Uh, should it still be something that is off limits for, for government to interfere in? Suppose it's just kind of average but different. So, so I didn't uh, physically observe of this, was the research that I did on uh, the reading that I did. I think what was remarkable was just learning how extensive uh, the education in the Talmud is and the fact that they're reading things like commentary on laws, so disagreements essentially among lawyers. Um, so a lot of the legal concepts that they would have to become familiar with was, was one of the things that really, really surprised me. But there's also, you know, learning 
uh, multiple languages, right? Learning a huge amount of history. So you, you know, you know, the Old Testament, as you know, we Christians call it, um, it just by itself is actually a very long series of books. It takes a, a very long time to get through it. So even it's not just learning sort of the details of the Old Testament narratives and how this person interpreted it and this person interpreted it, but knowing the history of the commentary on those books um, that was so striking to me because it requires all kinds of different tools, right? It requires yeah, historical tools. It requires legal tools. Um, so, so that was what impressed me about, you know, what I uh, was able to look into. Um, now, of course, I think uh, that is what we philosophers would say a sufficient condition for there to not uh, be uh, intervention, given that the education is high quality. Um, but it's not necessary. And so, you know, lower quality education um, is not necessarily going to be vulnerable to state intervention um, just because it isn't as impressive. Uh, as I say in the article, it still has to, you know, satisfy the intervention would still have to satisfy the, the relevant conditions. If the education was lower quality, it may not do as much good for the children. Um, but the thought would, you know, it still have to be the case that the problems were so large that they outweighed the interests of parents, that the proposed uh, uh, punishments not be excessively coercive or punitive. And we'd have to show that the government could do a better job. And it's perfectly plausible that in um, you know, lower quality uh, educational environments, those conditions still are not, are not met. Rita? Yeah, um, well, I think, you know, in terms of the question about observing the schools, um, a really good source on that is uh, Moshe Krakowski, who is a professor at uh, Yeshiva University who does sort of anthropological studies uh, of yeshiva education, including these, uh, the Haredi yeshivas that are controversial um, for what they teach. So uh, anybody who is interested in that, I think he's a, he's a very good source uh, for that. Um, and then the, the question about, well, if it's not remarkable, you know, should we still permit it? I think in all curricula, results are always more varied than intentions, right? So you have even excellent schools that are producing some pretty lackluster uh, individuals. Um, but I don't know that, uh, you know, you have to have a, a sort of 99% excellence rate in order to justify the kind of non-standard education that you're offering. I mean, in this case, we have a thousand-year-old educational tradition. Uh, so the fact that it has persisted that long, I think, is good reason to suggest uh, that there's something really substantial behind it. Um, and I think, you know, you can get to, to the sort of... Um, floor, the question of the floor, what's the floor at which we say no, right? How low quality can the education be before we, we intervene and say, you can't give this. Um, but I actually think that the best approach to thinking about that is through sort of the question of individual child abuse. I mean, that's sort of what people are getting at when they say this education is substandard. There's a legal question about substantial equivalence, but there seems to also be this moral question about, are these children essentially being abused? Uh, by having these opportunities taken away from them, by being indoctrinated into some kind of minority religious uh, sect. And I think the best way to approach that is through the, the, under, the civil understanding we have of abuse, where we, we investigate individual families and individual 
cases um, and we apply a set of universal standards for what abuse consists in. And if you can't meet those standards, you can't simply say that just because I don't like your religion uh, or I don't understand your religion, that constitutes abuse uh, or a kind of deprivation and neglect that we need to intervene in systematically. Great. Okay, I have a, a couple. Of, well, I have a comment and a question. Both come from AC. Um, the first one said, "Why not invite Yafed founders or, or other yeshiva graduates who claim they were denied an education?" I think to this event, that's a good question. That is on me. I, I'm the one who uh, put this together, and that would be actually a subject for I think a terrific future event. Uh, I really wanted to do an event that was focusing specifically on the content of this book, Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of Yeshivas versus New York. But I think it is important that we have uh, more events where we're sort of debating these issues with both sides represented. So that is a great idea for a future event. And then AC also says that uh, what Jason said about substantial equivalency was something of a made up history uh, they believe that the requirement of substantial equivalency was to ensure that all children attend schools one way or another, and that there's a level playing field. And that does get to this question of, you know, who uh, who ultimately gets to decide whether and where you hit that line where an education is sufficient for that individual to eventually run their own lives and when it is not sufficient. Uh, I don't know who wants to go first with that one, but I'll, I'll let Jason go because he's the editor. So uh, he put the whole thing, the, the whole book together. I'm responsible for the event. Yeah, and certainly we'd, uh, we'd love to do an event with Yafet. We'd be happy to. Uh, it's interesting though that at Yafet events, uh, that question never comes up in the reverse where Yafet only has uh, people that agree with them and uh, uh, they don't uh, tend to invite somebody that uh, was very happy with their yeshiva education to uh, explain why that person shouldn't have had access to the education that they had and, and enjoyed. Um, as far as this other question, yeah, it's this is not a made-up history. Like I said, you can go and take a look uh, at, at what the history was. Uh, there was a compulsory education requirement uh, that is was meant to make sure that every child had access to a an education. Um, but the specific language of that, what the private schools are doing uh, must be substantially equivalent to what the public schools are doing, uh, which you don't find in most states. Uh, the compulsory education is basically every state. Uh, substantial equivalence is not something that you find everywhere. That was specifically targeted at Catholics, but I would... Uh, I would direct folks to uh, look at uh, not only uh, Menachem Wecker's article on that, which I mentioned uh, and on Twitter, somebody uh, tweeted that out, uh, but also uh, some of the great work uh, of uh, Professor Charles Glenn, uh, formerly of uh, Boston University, uh, and his, uh, his work, The Myth of the Common School, which gets into great detail about uh, all the anti-Catholic bigotry surrounding the Blaine Amendment, and, and even to a great extent, the foundation of uh, of the common school system. Great. All right. Um, then we have a question from Mallory. Uh, she asked, Kevin, uh, is there a concern that your reliance on the quality of education is signaling that it's worthy of protection? Does that undermine the religious freedom basis for uh, arguing that uh, religious communities should be able to run their own schools? For example, if the quality was less, uh, then would that outweigh the religious freedom of those families? So, and that gets, I think, to a, a, an important part of this is 
we're talking a lot about religious liberty, but what if there was an excellent school that had no religious connection that was still doing a good job, but it was a community that was very different with the same calculus of determining when government could intervene applied to that school and to that community as would apply to Orthodox uh, Jewish schools? Yeah, I think um, the way that I approach this issue is that you have to balance two interests. The first are the educational interests of children, and then there are what I call the educating interests of parents, right? So we, we, we think generally we should default to what parents uh, want to do as far as educational choices for their kids. Um, and then we have to look at, you know, what we think sort of together actually are um, uh, the things that, that, that children are owed and then whether and when those interests are outweighed. And part of the educating interests of parents are that they be able to be brought up in their religion, their particular religion, or um, um, some, some, something along those lines, like maybe their ideology or their values or something of that sort. Um, so it's a balance of interests, and the quality of education figures into how well the educational interests of parents are being met. Um, but when balancing interests, I think what I, you know you find in political philosophy is it's it's very difficult to do in a principled in a principled way. So I try to set out those criteria without being able to specify the precise point at which there's a trade-off. My argument in the article, because it was applied to this particular case, was just that it, once you put the point in that way, it was clear that the educating interests of parents and that the educational interests of children were substantially aligned um, once, you know, you, there wasn't even really a conflict between the two. So, so the kind of conflict that we're worried about between quality of education and religious freedom didn't even arise. Um, but if there were such a conflict, yeah, then you, I think you have to go more case by case. It's hard to have a principle, a fully principled answer to that kind of question. Uh, now, this is going to kind of flip things a little. If nobody wants to answer, that's fine. But I think it presents an interesting uh, counterpoint to this. Uh, Gerald asks uh, or says, I would be more inclined to hear of a case regarding a plaintiff withstanding versus the New York City public school system for not providing an education, preparing a child for any role in our society. And uh, several of the chapters, I think, talked about, well, you know, there are these allegations against uh, yeshivas. Uh, of not preparing people to live as self-governing adults, but look at the public school system. Are they doing any better? So would one of you uh, like to address whether or not the public schools are any doing any better? And maybe even the question of, well, when could you sue the government if you feel the education you're getting is not good enough? And I should note there have been a few cases recently uh, about uh, people saying that their education did not prepare them to be adults and especially to be productive citizens. Uh, maybe uh, I'll ask uh, Rita if you want to take that first. If not, I will send it around the horn. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, one could say of the substantial equivalence requirement, right, substantially equivalent to what? To Stuyvesant or to the average of New York City public schools or to the worst performing New York City public schools? Because certainly it would seem that the results from from uh, Jewish yeshivas in the, in the city of New York are likely to be, in fact, I think they empirically are better than the results of the worst performing New York City public schools. Uh, so in that respect, you know, substantial equivalence, that's part of the vagueness of substantial equivalence, which is substantially equivalent to what, um, given how poorly some public schools are performing. 
so I, I, you know, I would say that the substantial equivalence standard, if you want to uphold it, would open the way certainly to, to certain lawsuits uh, against the public school system for not being substantially equivalent to itself. Right, that there's a huge disparity in the quality of public schooling in New York City and elsewhere in the country, um, but that to me would seem to uh, militate against substantial equivalence as a viable sort of legal standard. That that's not the outcome we want. We don't want people suing for um, for a substantial equivalence to Stuyvesant, a universal substantial substantial equi equivalent to Stuyvesant, or something like that. Um, but I think that that's a very good point. And I think that's one of the, the problems also that comes up with this argument about welfare use, uh, which is that while the, if the Hasidic community uses welfare at a high rate, shouldn't we in some way surveil and penalize them for that? But I think that that would have to be a principle universally drawn. Um, and then we would have to do the same thing to public school students, right? That most recipients of welfare are, are public school graduates. And so maybe we should be doing the same things to public school students. So yeah, I mean, I definitely think that this, this kind of approach to what the state's interest is in education, and what the state's role in regulating education is, uh, can lead down a lot of problematic pathways. Great. Uh, AC weighs in again, says Yafed is an advocacy group. Ask, is Cato an advocacy group for yeshivas to maintain the status quo? Uh, I can't answer for Cato. I can only answer for myself. But again, I put this event together. Uh, the reason that we're having this event is because there's a new book. And this book isn't actually just about yeshivas. Uh, that is the jumping off point for a deeper discussion of when the state can intervene in any way in education. Uh, but uh, I certainly agree that it would be great to have an event with uh, Yafed, somebody from Yafed here, maybe Jason, uh, others, and uh, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm nmccluskey at cato.org, C-A-T-O.org, and I would be happy to host that. Uh, in fact, you can see that we often have events where we have lots of different views. In fact, not too long ago, we had an event that was related to this question all about homeschoolers. Uh, and we had uh, two speakers uh, who were uh, thought there should be a whole lot more regulation of homeschools. So I think we typically do a good job of trying to get multiple views. And we're not advocates, uh, or I'm not an advocate in any way for yeshivas or anyone else, although I am an advocate for educational freedom. And connected to that, brings us to our next question. Uh, and this moves beyond now just when a school can be regulated by the state without a, uh, just for existing, basically, and whether or not it provides the education a child needs to become a self-governing adult. Uh, this person is anonymous. No, sorry, name is Roger. And Roger says, in England, religious schools can be state-funded, and problems have arisen even in them with allegations of extremism in Muslim schools. Do different principles arrive uh, where the state, when the state subsidizes private schools? Uh, and does uh, anybody want to start with that? Jason, I know you do a lot of work on school choice. Is this different uh, when, than, uh, say, a voucher program? I mean, there, there are a number of cases where states already uh, say that that private schools, this, by the way, first of all, there's a lot of regulations on private schools, even when they don't get a, a dime from the state. Uh, and there there are different uh, regulations that say that uh, private schools can't be, you know, teaching uh, insurrection, violent insurrection against the government and things like that. Uh, although uh, I don't, a lot of them haven't been uh, tested in court. Uh, and one wonders uh, what the uh, you know, early American colonists would have thought if uh, 
if King George had said that you can't be uh, teaching anti-government views in the schools. Uh, so it is really hard to draw the line, I think, when it comes to the teaching, you know, something like teaching of violent extremism. Um, you know, maybe the line has to be drawn somewhere, but I think we should always err on the side of freedom. Uh, and it, it doesn't seem that uh, the United States or Britain even, uh, which has a much higher uh, percentage of the population is Muslim, uh, actually have uh, an issue where violent extremists are, are in any danger of uh, actually, you know, taking over, overthrowing the government. Uh, so I think as much as possible, we should err on the side of freedom. Great. All right. We're, we're, we got about eight minutes left. And here's a, a question that comes from Mark. Uh, and this is one that I've had as, as I was reading the, uh, the book. Uh, in particular, it actually uh, may be most applicable to actually Berner's uh, chapter that talks about pluralism versus a common school approach versus a libertarian approach. Um, but also, Kevin, you dealt with this about, well, is there some nucleus of subjects that all students should take? And so Mark asks, are there certain courses and standards that are so essential, for example, civics and media literacy, that the state must require proficiency that it all so that all its citizens and consequently its communities are substantially fulfilled? How does that apply here at if at all, and in particular, my question related to that is, where do you draw the line or how is the line drawn to say, well, everybody has to learn a certain amount of history. Where do you draw the line on what that history is before you get to the point where you were talking about controversial history that people simply disagree about? Um, how do you make sure that people are actually required to learn if you require something like that? something that everybody would agree on uh, as being essential. I mean, the, I think that's precisely the way that you at least try to uh, figure out what's essential, which you have to look at what different perspectives can converge upon or from different perspectives agree is essential. And I think everyone will agree that reading, writing, and math are absolutely minimum uh, essentials that I think the yeshivas are giving uh, to their students in spades. Um, then we've raised the question about what kind of language use is essential. Does it have to be English? Or, you know, but I think everyone can agree that if you're fluent in reading and writing in, multi, in, in, in one or two languages that are live and active, you know, that's also a minimum standard. Um, my own view is I would add in terms of civics that people know what their basic constitutional rights are as citizens. So, for instance, you can imagine religious communities that taught their children that they had no right to leave when in fact they do have a constitutional right to leave at a certain age um, or that they have certain other constitutional rights um, in terms of, of, of speech and freedom of religion. Um, so I would add that as a, a minimum point uh, for, for civics, uh, civics education. Um, there are a lot of other things you might think are, are relevant too, but um, I think that's a very good place to, to begin. History, you know, becomes more controversial, particularly in the case of a lot of religious schooling where there's uh, usually a pretty deep difference between the way people think about origins um, and what's taught in secular schools. Uh, so our last question, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a name for the person who sent it, um, but this is a, an interesting uh, question. Uh, they say, those who either leave Hasidic communities and pursue higher education successfully 
or remain but are successful in business or are otherwise self-sufficient encounter serious obstacles and barriers. Uh, their sex, uh, successes are despite where they come from and what they learned in yeshiva, not because of it. And that I think raises a good question of, well, when do we, where do you draw that line when the state should intervene of, well, you've been so handicapped, you could never succeed versus, well, you've got a lot of obstacles, but you can succeed. Uh, Jason? Yeah, well, first I'd say, uh, even if we were to assume that it's it's despite um, their upbringing that they're able to succeed, the fact is uh, they're able to succeed. And so that really diminishes the argument that the government should be intervening, that it's such a huge obstacle that they can't. But I, I think actually it's, it's a mistake to make that assumption. Uh, I, I think, and this is where I think a lot of the, uh, the critics of yeshiva education, um, uh, especially those actually that uh, grew up with it, uh, don't appreciate what they actually learned. They may uh, be deficient in their view in terms of the content that they learned, uh, but they actually learned a great deal of skills and, and uh, habits of the heart that really do help them uh, obtain a secular education and help them in life, help them in business, help them in other areas. Uh, I sort of experienced this from uh, the reverse. Uh, I grew up uh, in a very secular home. I went to public school for most of my life, Catholic high school. Uh, and it was only after college that I went to yeshiva and sort of had this culture shock where I had to, you know, suddenly I'm learning texts in the original Hebrew and Aramaic. And there are all these you know, concepts that are entirely foreign to me that I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, but when, when the students go through a yeshiva education, they learn how to start studying very early in the morning and study all the way till very uh, late at night. They learn how to take a text that they're unfamiliar with, uh, where there's a whole bunch of, let's say there's a legal argument with a, a bunch of different rabbis that are arguing over a certain issue. Uh, and then you've got the commentaries on that and commentaries on the commentaries. And so you may have uh, one medieval commentator, Rashi, understands this dispute one way, Tosvos comes in and says, we understand it a different way. Uh, then you have Rabbeinu Hananiel or some other uh, commentator come in and say, well, we understand it a third way. And so by the end, you, you started with three different opinions. And in the end, you've got nine or 12 different opinions, right? So this, this uh, ability to closely read a text, to analyze it, to approach the issue, study it from multiple different angles, to sit with a chavrusa, a study partner, and bat the ideas around back and forth until you have a really deep, rich understanding of the text before you move on. Uh, these are, uh, you know, study habits and ways of learning that these students acquire that do actually prepare them for life, that do actually prepare them. Uh, they can take these skills and habits and apply them in entirely different areas. I think actually those students, even if they haven't uh, you know, formally learned English or anything like that, uh, or spent time with a, you know, a science class are actually much better prepared than the kid at the public school down the street who graduates 12th grade without able to being able to read the diploma that he is handed. Uh, so I think it's, again, I think uh, first you can't prove it one way or the other, but I, I think that there's a, a strong reason to believe it's actually not despite the education that they uh, receive, that they succeed in life, but actually because of it. We are now at two o'clock, and so I want to thank all the panelists who join us today. Again, the book uh, right here is Religious Liberty and Education, a Case Study of Yeshivas versus New York. Uh, and this video will be up for anybody to watch uh, in perpetuity. So with that, I'll thank 
Jason for putting the book together and all the panelists and everyone for joining us. Thank you.